Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We're so glad that you have decided to join us this fine Labor Day weekend, wherever you might be, here at 505 Community Drive or somewhere on a lake somewhere. I pray it doesn't rain on you today as we sit inside here. No, seriously, hope it's a great weekend, and we are so grateful that you've joined us today for worship. We pray that God meets you wherever you are and that God speaks to you in the way you need to hear from him uh, today. We do have a couple of things that we want to bring your attention to. You may have noticed we've got not one but two roses here at the front. And for those that attend on a regular basis, you know that two roses mean that we have new babies. And we are so excited about that. Um, one is in honor of Gracelyn Marie Simpson, correct? Yes, that's when. And parents are Laura and Chase Simpson. Uh, Laura is the daughter of Larry and Carla Lee. And uh, so we celebrate the birth of your new granddaughter. So congratulations, Larry and Carla. And uh, then we also have a second rose up here, and that is in honor of Gwendolyn May Hatton. And uh, she was born on August 22nd to Tyler and Alyssa Hatton. And that would be the granddaughter uh, of Greg and Marsha Hatton. So congratulations to the new grandparents. We are so excited for you and we celebrate these new lives and hope to see them here some, sometime soon. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to the word of God. Father God, we thank you so much for this day of life that you've given us. We thank you for the chance that we have to be together here in this place, Lord to sing songs of praise, to remind us of, of who you are and our need for you, to lift up our voices in adoration of how great you are and the way that you continue to work in our world and in our lives. Lord, we know that there are many in our church that are dealing with sickness right now, uh, as there are several things going around. Lord, we pray that you would be with them. Lord, that you would touch them, that you would bring about healing and wholeness. Lord, we pray for those that are traveling maybe this weekend. Lord, we pray that you would give them a, a good time of rest and refreshment, Lord, and that you would bring them back to us safely. We lift them to you. Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we look into the truth of your word, Lord, that you would speak to us in clear ways, Lord, in the ways that we need to hear from you. Lord, that you would encourage our hearts and challenge us to take steps to follow you faithfully. Lord, we give you ourselves and we ask you to speak to us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, neither of my children were what you would consider big babies, uh, or big children for that matter. I'm, I always find it funny when people talk about uh, how big their children are and talk about, yeah, well, my, my child wasn't very big. They were like six pounds, and I'm like, please, I didn't have a child born over three and a half pounds. Our, our kids were both crazy small, JJ being the bigger of the two at a whopping four pounds when we took him home. So neither of our kids were, were that big. They, they were little kids. And all the way through their growing up years, they tracked small. Right? Like you go into those doctor's appointments where they talk about where your kids are on the growth curve and where they are with the, the averages of, of where everyone else's kids were. And as we lock, watched those, we knew with a fair amount of certainty that neither of our, our kids were going to be pro basketball players. Because from the very beginning, they were at the very bottom of the scale. I mean, I'm pretty sure Michaela was at a negative percentile at one point in time because she was so small. The JJ wasn't that much bigger. 
But that didn't stop our kids from doing what most of your kids have probably done throughout their lives, and that is comparing themselves with their parents. Now, I know that this is particularly a thing with boys, that boys are looking forward to the day that they are bigger than dad. Anyone else, any men in the congregation have kids that were constantly comparing themselves with their dad? Yeah, I know there's more of us than just me. Yeah, there we go. I see a few of us. Well, that's been a thing in my house, and I know it was a thing in my, in my, my parents' house growing up, that I always wanted to know, where was I in the measurement against the big man in the house? That's always been a thing for JJ. Even when he was little, he used to talk to his sister about how one day he was going to be the big brother. And she was going to be the little sister. She might be older, but he was going to be bigger. And he's always talked to me about, Dad, one day I'm going to be bigger than you. JJ, I need you to come up here for a second for me. All right? Give it up for JJ as he comes to the front. Now, JJ is finally reaching that, that, that time in life where he, <laughs> where he is... He is gaining on me size-wise. He actually is about a half a size bigger than me in shoes, something that he reminds me of on a regular basis. But it's not uncommon for me to be walking around the house and turn around and see this. Yeah, do it. Do what you do. Right? He'll be walking around, and he doesn't, like, he's not subtle, right? Like, I can feel him breathing literally on me, and I turn around, he's like, Dad, stop. Dad, stop. Dad, stop. He's like, I, th- I think we're at the same level. I think I've, I've been hurting in my knees a little bit. I'm having a growth spurt, Dad. I think, I think I've got you. And I'm like, nah, buddy, you are not, you're not there yet. He'd be like, I, I think I am. Mom, 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 come here. Mom, come here. And then he'll take me and he'll be like, look, Mom. <laughs> look, Mom. I think I'm taller. And so this is a regular feature in the Myers house is the who's bigger game. Now, at the moment... You can look and you can tell that I am just there. Like I, I, there's not much. It was a little bit better to hide when I had the faux hawk, but now he's got the hair and I don't. And so we're right on the level there that he is about to pass me. Now something that I keep reminding JJ of here recently is that he may pass me this way, but dad's still bigger, right? There's something to be said for dad's strength, and we're still in that phase where I can take him. But even one day, I know that he's going to be stronger than me, but there's still a level of dad's strength because whose credit card does he need when he needs to go somewhere? He might get bigger than me, but for at least a few years, my wallet's going to be bigger than his, right? He's bigger, but it's my house, so I'm bigger, right? Know your role, son. Thanks, JJ. Now, I realize something. I, I, work, I work in churches, so I deal with, with people through multiple fa- facets of life, and I realize that, that I am coming into the phase of life where I need to start being a little bit nicer to him and recognizing the reality of what's coming because the unavoidable reality in our lives as far as parents and children is one day he will be bigger than me. Like, not just size-wise, the fact is within a few years, I'm a pastor, right? He's going to make more money than me, more than likely. And one of these days, I am to some degree going to be dependent upon him. He will be the bigger of the two of us. And there's going to be a moment when all of the comparisons, he's going to pass me in a vast majority of them. And that's okay. I realize that on the human growth and development scale, that's just how life works, isn't it? That's fine. But I think that there's a, an inherent problem with, with us as we consider God as well. 
Because I think sometimes we do the same thing with our Heavenly Father. Now, we would not dare to say it out loud, but we think that we're big enough. We, we look to what God's expectations are and what, what we think God wants us to do, and we think that for whatever reason, we are big enough, that we can make our own decisions, that we can control our own lives, that we can take care of our own problems because we're big enough. Again, we would never say that explicitly. But I think if we honestly and objectively observed our lives and considered how we act in relation to God, there are, in fact, times where we get a little too big for our bridges. Assuming that, at least in that area, in that moment, we've outgrown our need for God. And scriptures give us all kinds of warnings, all kinds of, of exhortations reminding us that no matter how good we get, no matter how strong, no matter how wealthy, no matter how powerful, we are always going to fall short of God's glorious standard. That no matter how great or how big we are, we will always need his intervention and assistance in our lives. Because all of us inevitably and often fall short of God's expectations and standards and what is needed for our own lives. We've got to ask the question, who, who do we trust? To whom can we turn in our time of help? As, as Isaiah transitions the book in Isaiah 40, we see Isaiah pointing our attention to where it needs to be. That in the midst of our world, and in the midst of coming big problems, we need a big God. So turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1. And it says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All the people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The, the grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow 
of his hand. Or with the breadth of his hand marks out the heavens. Who has held the the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metalworker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know and have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted. No sooner are they sown. No sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlpool sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out, of this, out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause disregarded by God? Do you not know and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. We've got a passage here coming out of this this previous section. And this actually starts a new section of the book of Isaiah. And what better way to start this new passage than to, to point out exactly how great God is. And it starts with the words, comfort, comfort. And God reminds his people in this transitionary period, which is what they were in, that that it is God who provides comfort in the chaos. God provides comfort in the chaos. It's hard to find sometimes, isn't it, comfort in our world. In the midst of the struggles of our own experiences, in the midst of the turmoil of, of, of national struggles and, and economic realities, and in the, in the midst of, of, of children growing up and going and doing their own thing, in, in the midst of, we could put 
dozens of things out there, our own, our own jobs, our own relationships. They're, they're, there's no shortage of trouble in the world, is there? The world spins and with it us. And sometimes it spins out of control and it feels dizzying and disorienting. And for the people of Israel, they had been through one conflict after another. I mean, you could go back to Solomon. After Solomon reigns and they expand their empire, their kingdom, to the widest ranges that it had ever been and experienced unprecedented security during his time and wealth and prosperity, the wheels fall off with Solomon's sons. And it's, it's kind of a, a consistent up-down thing, but they never reach the heights that they had under Solomon again. And as a matter of fact, in every age, they seem to have someone staring at them, looking over their shoulder, preparing to come and cause them problem. They are always worried about where the struggle is going to come from. And in fact, these people that, that God is speaking to, because it's the Lord saying, hey, comfort my people. Comfort them. Tell them that, that they need to have comfort. Take comfort. The people of Israel had just been through a war with Syria and Samaria, one which they weren't winning at the beginning, remember? And the Lord steps in and says, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of it. Well, how does the Lord take care of it? The Lord sends Assyria, a, a northern kingdom, an empire, and the, and the Assyrians come down, and they destroy Samaria, and they destroy Syria. But then they have the issue of now Assyria has no one between them and, and Judah, and they're staring at them. And Sennacherib, the, the king, is saying, hey, I'm going to come in and take everything you've got. I'm going to lead you away with hooks through your nose. It's going to be terrible. But the Lord sends Hezekiah word that the Assyrians won't take them. And God ultimately sends the Babylonians to destroy the Assyrians but then last week we read that Hezekiah boasted to the Babylonians and talked about how great he was, right? The exact thing that we're talking about beginning this morning, that, that we don't want to be too big for our britches. And, and Hezekiah does. He says, look at all these things that I've got and what a great partner I would be with you. And God says, because you've just boasted, one of these days these Babylonians are going to come and they're going to take you captive. They're going to steal everything that you own. They're going to destroy everything that you hold dear. And some of your own relatives are going to be taken captive. And right after that promise, right after the promise of imminent destruction, God says, take comfort. I mean, look at your Bible, right? It is literally the previous verse, verses where, where God is saying, destruction's coming. It's believed that chapter 40 was written after destruction had in fact come. That this is to the descendants of Hezekiah that, that are in exile, that they are dealing with the reality of their forefathers' sins. And, and that in ex exile, God is saying, hey, take comfort. Take comfort. Regardless of when the writing takes place, it hits a little strange, doesn't it? That in the midst of struggle, God would say, hey, take comfort. Take heart. Don't worry about this. But that's exactly what God does. And God provides two reasons for his people to take comfort, to take heart in the middle of their struggle. The first is found in verses 1 and 2. 
It says, comfort, comfort my people. It says, God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. That her sin has been paid for. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. First thing that we see here that they can take comfort with and that applies to us as well as the people of God in the New Testament era is this. Is that their sins would be paid for. That their debt would be, that their debt would be taken care of. The wording used in the passage describes a person who was forced into service to pay a substantial debt. The person is doing hard labor to pay back what is owed. And not just to pay back what was owed, but to pay back the interest on what was owed as well. You know, I remember when I was in college going in and sitting down with uh, the financial advisor who was advising me on what I needed to do to stay in school. My parents had eight kids. Two of us had just entered in college at the same time. And so I didn't have, I didn't have monies that my parents could help me with. So my only option was to go into the office and take out loans. And, and there were the school loans, and those, those were very manageable, but I had to take out a secondary loan um, from Wells Fargo. And I remember sitting down and, and the lady explaining to me, well, this is what the, the loan is, and this is, this is how you're going to pay this back, and this is what the interest rate is. And I remember as an 18, 19-year-old kid, I had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. It made no sense to me as I'm looking at all the words on this legal contract that I'm about to sign as a brand new adult, having had parents who really didn't teach me about any of these things. I mean, who talks about compound interest when they're 17 years old? And so I'm sitting there and I'm talking, but you know what I did understand? When she flipped the page and it showed me the payment schedule. That made sense to me. And I looked at the end, and it told me what the original loan is and what I would have paid back if I paid according to that schedule and paid it off in the time frame they gave me. And I don't remember what the percentage was of an increase, but I remember this, that it was going to take me about till right now to pay off my loans if I followed the loan schedule, and I would end up paying just under double what I'd borrowed in the first place if I followed their schedule. And I remember thinking, that's a really good deal for them, right? How do I get in that business? But for me, that's highway robbery. But that's the problem with loans, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't matter what the loan is. It, you, have, you have those loans with the high interest rate that, that are spread out of time because you're a college student, you're making no money, and they're trying to make it affordable for you. But any of us that go into a bank right now, and we get a loan, we realize that it is going to have interest on top of it. That we are not just paying back the money that we borrowed, but we're paying for the privilege of borrowing the money. Bank wants to get something back. Not necessarily a great deal for us, though. It seems good at the time. You know, the same thing is true when it comes to our sin debt. Sin Rebellion, going our own way, doing our own thing. I don't know anyone who had an idea and thought, you know what, I really want to do this. That thought, that's, that's a bad idea. That did the thing they thought was, now maybe we do, but we did it anyways. You know why we did it? Because we thought it was going to be fun. And you know what? In the moment, it probably was. 
But that's cashing a check that's going to cause some serious interest payments later. It's going to accrue well beyond what we can afford. And that's what we see being painted here, that, that these people, the people of Israel, as individuals and as a national entity, as the people of God, have taken out proverbial loans that they couldn't afford to pay back. And in biblical times, what happened is this. If you couldn't pay back according to the schedule, they didn't just roll it in and make the loan bigger. No, 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 no. Instead, they took you captive and they made you work. You became an indentured servant. For all intents and purposes, you became a high-level slave with an end date to your slavery. It talks about that, right? The Lord says that, that your time of your service, your hard service has been completed. Now, we might make the mistake of reading this and think that, that what's being said is that they'd worked their way out of their problem, which is what we would like to believe as Americans a lot of times, isn't it? That, that if we just work hard enough, if we just do enough good, if we do more good than we do bad, that the scales will tip in our balance, and, and that if we do one bad thing, that if we do two good things, that that'll pay that off. But that's not how it works with sin. Sin stains everything. It creates a debt that we can't and don't want to pay. The wording here refers not to a monetary debt, but to a blood debt. Someone is going to bleed. The wording is only ever used in the Bible in connection with blood sacrifices. And they could take comfort in the fact that they're Suffering wouldn't last forever. But someone was going to bleed for it. And this is where the second part of the good news comes in. The price of their sin would be paid in full, and they were not the ones that were going to be paying for it. That the Lord himself would pay the bill. If you look in verse 2, it says, Her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. That, that double for all of her sins is, is not necessarily a negative thing. It's that God's going to pay the price of our sin, and then we are going to be blessed on top of that. That is passive. That her sin has been paid for. The indication is not, in fact, that Israel had worked their way out of their debt, but that some generous benefactor is going to step in, or has stepped in, is going to pay the price of their penalty. In verses 3 through 5, we see the reality of who that was going to be. That the Lord himself, and this is the second thing that they should take heart from, that the Lord himself would clear a path through the chaos and would bring them their salvation. God declares these words. This is important for us. Remember, God has just declared, you are going to go into exile. You're going to be occupied by an external force. You are going to be taken captive. And God tells them that, hey, there's going to be a time where a path is going to be cleared, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to bring you out of captivity. It's the same language that we see in the time of the Exodus. And I think that this is very important for us. Because it's not that God clears a path and says, hey, come on out, right? It's not that God passively sits on the backside of things and, and, and opens the proverbial waters or clears the, the, the mountainous road in front of them and says, hey, you come to me. 
The text is actually very clear that we are preparing the way of the Lord, right? That's what it says. That's, that's actually the message of John the Baptist as well, isn't it, right? Uh, the voice of one calling in, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That, that every mountain is going to be leveled and every valley is going to be brought up and every obstruction is going to be removed. Why? So that God himself can come to us. Is that not what we see in the, in the life and work of Jesus? It's not just that Christ calls us to himself. It's that Christ, God made flesh, condescended and came to us. This is the way of God's salvations, brothers and sisters. It is not generally that God calls us out of our difficulty. It's not God calling us out of our chaos and out of our suffering. But that's what we want, isn't it? God, just stop the hurt. Stop the struggle. I admit that's what I want, but that is not how God often works. God And his grace usually joins us in the struggle. He comes to us in the midst of our struggle and he escorts us out. He brings salvation to us. He doesn't just call us to salvation. Is that not what we see in the New Testament as well? I mean, we can look over and over again and that is the reality of what we see. God didn't just call the Israelites out of Egypt, did 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 he? No, he, he went to Moses and said, hey, Moses, I need you to go to my people. And I need you to go and deliver them. You go to Pharaoh, and you're going to speak to Pharaoh on my behalf. God joined his people on the ground in the midst of their suffering and then led them out. Same thing is true in the New Testament with Peter, right? They're, they're in the middle of the storm, and, and the storm comes up, and they're sure they're going to die. These seasoned sailors, these salty dogs are out in the middle of the sea. And as a, a storm comes up, it's whipping around, and they are positive they are going to die. And into the middle of the storm comes who? Jesus. Jesus comes out into the storm and, and is just in front of Peter. And Peter says, hey, Lord, if it's you, have me come to you. And Jesus says, all right, do it, man. Come on. And Peter steps onto the the water and begins walking, but as soon as he gets his foot on that water and starts stepping, he starts seeing the wind and the waves again, and he starts paying attention to the chaos, and and he becomes troubled and immediately starts sinking and cries out again, Lord, I'm drowning, help me. And Jesus reaches out his hand, grabs Peter, picks him up, and then what does he do? He walks to the boat, they get in, and then... Christ calms the storm. I think that's a pattern that we often miss. You see, Peter wasn't made for walking on the sea. Yes, Jesus did allow him to do it, but, but Peter got, got all kinds of caught up in the chaos around him. And that's what we do, isn't it? It says at the end we're going to see this, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. See, our job is not to save ourselves. We, we are... We are passive participants in salvation at every level. And throughout the entirety of Scripture, we are passive participants. We are accepting what God in his grace offers. And God, in his mercy, in his love, in his compassionate grace, joins us in the midst of the struggles that we face in life, joins us in the midst of our sinfulness, and picks us up and leads us out to safety. This is our God. God provides a solution at the start of their struggle and says, hey, take comfort. And brothers and sisters, I think that God is saying the same thing to you and I today. Take comfort. 
comfort. Know, know that I'm, I'm here. Know that I'm coming. Know that I have a plan. Whatever it is that you're facing, whatever struggle that it is that you feel is overcoming you, know that I am with you and I have a plan for your deliverance. Take comfort. God provides comfort in our chaos. And the truth is that in the midst of our, our chaos, in the midst of our struggles, that there is no substitute for the power and presence of God. There is no substitute for the power and presence of God in our lives. Isaiah has an interesting rhetorical debate going on throughout the text. I don't know if you caught it as I was reading, but, but he asks a lot of questions, and he doesn't actually provide the answers because the answers are obvious. They're assumed. And it's a rhetorical debate about to whom can we turn for salvation? You know, there's a, a phrase that's, that's popular these days uh, that I see it a lot in sports. You know, uh, I, I am him. Right? That's, that's what it is. I saw it the other day uh, in, about Deion Sanders. Uh, Deion Sanders is him, right? He's been talking this big talk about how he's going to make Colorado the, this powerhouse of a team. And they play one game and they win and they're like, they're pronouncing Deion Sanders now the savior of Division I football in Colorado. Got to admit it was pretty impressive, but I don't know that I would say he's him, right? But where I really noticed it was last year during basketball season. There, there's a little-known player. He's a little more known now. He was an L.A. Lakers rookie named Austin Reeves. Austin Reeves. He's six foot five, shooting guard, point guard. And I know that 6'5 is big for all of us. He would like probably be the biggest person in the congregation today if he was here. But amongst NBA players, he's just a little fella. right? 6'5 is not huge. That's average to below average in NBA standards. And I remember last year watching this, this highlight reel on one of the social media things. And, and Austin Reeves was having himself a game. He was playing really well. And he stepped across half court, dribbled it two or three times, and shot from really deep and made the shot right at the buzzer. And he turns around and you can see him shout, I am him. I am him. You know what's really funny to me about that shot? Is right behind him on the same court wearing the same jersey for the same team are Anthony Davis, a perennial all-star, Russell Westbrook, a perennial all-star, and LeBron James, the undebatable best player in the last two decades. I, and I, you got to think to yourself, you look at that and you're like, Austin, <laughs> you had a good moment. Slow your roll, son. You're not him. You're a bench player who had a good moment. But this is the reality in our lives. We, we like to think that. We like to think that, that I'm him, I'm her. We like to think that we're something. Or maybe we look to someone else that's around us or something else and we think they are it. And we can rely on them. And, and here's what I want to warn you about and what I think Isaiah is warning us about today. That anytime we believe that anyone or anything else is it. Anything other than God, we are gravely mistaken and we are going to be incredibly disappointed. Anytime we look to anyone or anything else, including ourselves, anytime we look to anyone or anything else other than God for salvation, it's going to fall short. Which is exactly what Isaiah argues here. 
He reminds us right at the out that we are human and we are not strong enough to save ourselves. You and I will never be good enough. Now that's not meant to be a, a discouraging thing. That's just the reality of scriptures. That we, we, cannot, we cannot ascend to God by our own power. We cannot get out of our own struggle. We cannot fix what we've done wrong on our own strength. Isaiah tells us that all people are like grass and flowers. And the grass withers and the flowers fall. Recently, I was uh, standing in the office when one of our, our clean queens of the flowers here at First Baptist Church, Joellen Martin, came in, and she was preparing to, to water and try to aid our plants. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, the weather was ridiculously hot, right? And so Joellen's coming in, and she's talking about how she's going to do some emergency work with some of our flowers. I believe they were petunias. And together, Joellen... And Jean lamented that it was probably the end for those dear petunias. That they'd probably, we're going to give them a little water and we hoped that they would come back too. But the heat and the time of year that they probably just had their time because all of their little flowers were turning brown and falling off. And I left for lunch and by the time I got back, I'll be the only petunias that were left had fallen, were on the ground and there were new flowers in the pot. And I read these words and I was like, we just like them petunias. We have our time in the sun, but eventually it burns us all out, doesn't it? Eventually the flowers fade. We know the reality of the grass. I had a great day yesterday, and one of the reasons I had a great day is because my grass is brown. Thank you, Jesus. For those of you that water your grass so that you can cut it, that's pure foolishness. Robin's like, hey, you need to get out there and mow your grass. And I was like, no, I don't. It's dead. Right? And even if it hadn't, you could look out there and you could see a little bit of the clippings from a couple weeks ago. Because grass just comes and goes. It, it grows and dies and it is what it is. Not much to it. It lives its life cycle and that's what it is. It's fragile. It's fallible. It, it, it has... It has a time stamp where it will expire. And we may be able to stand firm on our own strength for but a moment. But all of us will fall short and will fall flat at some time. To err is human. And our fragility will come to bear. We are not him. You are not him, and I am not him. We, in and of ourselves, cannot bring about our own salvation. We are not him. But then he goes on. He talks in verses 15 through 17, and he tells us that, that national identities and allegiances are not substantial enough to provide true and lasting security. He, he says, hey, all of your nations are just but a drop in the bucket. They might move the water a little bit, but they're not making a measurable difference in the grand scheme of eternity. It's undeniable that our nations play an important role in our quality of life. It's undeniable that our nations have, a, our governments have a role in, in providing security and taking care of their people. 
And the people in, our, in power can do a lot to make life either easier or harder on us. Further, having good, strong allies helps provide a level of security and peace. But in the grand scheme of things, all of our national doings and dealings are but flashes in the pan. Drops in a bucket, dust on the scales, ash in the fireplace. Our world will not be saved, and listen to me again, I'm going to say this very clearly. Our world will not be saved or damned by any nation, administration, empire, or ally. And I think that's important for us to remember. We spend entirely too much time fretting about some perceived antichrist or savior who might come about and come to power and either make or break our reality. And the truth is they won't bring about salvation or damnation. That power lies in the hands of God and God alone. It is him we should fear. It is him we should follow. It is in him we should place our trust. Because in him we find our salvation. Our nations and all they offer are not him. Then Isaiah turns his attention to other gods. And he notes that all other idols, all other gods are cheap man-made imitations that do nothing more than just stand there. All of our idols, all of these gods that we worship and things that we put our trust in might be pretty to look at. They might distract us from our reality, but they do nothing to move the needle. Y'all remember those toys from the, the 1970s? They were like those little eggy things that you had, and you could bump them over and roll them, and they would, they would always stand back up. The, the weebles, like weebles wobble, but they won't fall down, right? I, I, I loved those toys, and I find them interesting because that's essentially what Isaiah compares other gods to. He says all these other gods, they, they're pretty, they're flashy, they're covered in gold, they're covered in silver, but, but they're built just to stand there. Like, that's the best thing that you can say about them, is that they might weeble and wobble, but they don't fall down. All these other things that you worship, they, they just draw your attention. They don't do anything, right? Weebles don't do anything. They're one of those toys you can play with, and it's really cool to look at for the first three minutes, but then you're like, this is dumb. I can't do anything with this. Unless you have a lot of other brothers, and then you can play a really epic game and dangerous game of dodgeball. But they don't do anything. That's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, look, humanity can create and do some amazing things that are incredibly entertaining, that are fun to look at and fun to watch. But what does, it, what does it achieve other than a momentary distraction from reality? All of the idols to which we devote so much attention and affection can't save us. They're not him. And Isaiah, as he's going through this, he, he kind of goes back and forth. And I just jumped through all the things that are not him. And throughout it, he asks questions that, that, answer, that are answered in one statement that he makes early on. He tells Isaiah, tell Israel, this is your God. Then he asks a bunch of these rhetorical questions. He's reminding Isaiah, he's reminding us, he's reminding the people that our God is incomparable. Our God is incomparable. 
God gives good news in verses 9 through 11 of who he is and what he does. You can read it for yourself, but I'm just going to give the bullet points. He, he is the sovereign king of all of creation. And he invites his people to loudly and proudly declare their allegiance. God reminds them that he has the power to deliver in one hand, his strong right arm. And the resources to secure the redemption of his people, his reward and recompense in the other. He is the king. He alone is the king who can rule and protect and shepherd his people. Who can bring about comfort and care for his people in times of uncertainty and chaos. And while clearly laying out who and what is not their God and Savior... He presents these questions that follow up that align with what he just said he is. He reminds them that no one and nothing compares with him. This morning we need to know and hear the truth just as they did. Verse 12 tells us that he alone is creator God. Who measured the waters in their hands? Remind me, remind me, who measured the water in the hollow of his hands? Or marked the breadth with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? The obvious answer is no one but me. No one but me. This is reserved. Just me. Just me. Verse 13 through 14. He reminds them that he alone is all-knowing. All Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Who understands what God is doing? Listen, do you understand what God is doing? Because I don't. I mean, I got some ideas and I try to watch, but God does what God's going to do. And there's nothing I, he, he didn't ask me my opinion. And just so you know, he didn't ask for yours either. Who, who can instruct the Lord as counselor? Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And, and who taught him what was the right way to go? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path to understanding? These are things that have obvious questions. No one did. We get that from him. He alone is sovereign king, we see in verses 21 through 24. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. Sometimes we want to scooch God off that seat, don't we? Hey, God, make some room. I got some plans. Got some things I want. That's a mistake. God alone is sovereign king. Verses 25 through 26 tell us that, that he alone keeps the, the universe on time. That he calls the heavenly bodies out. We saw that big full moon the other night, right? Do y'all see that? It was epic. It was huge. It's crazy to think how God turns that in just the right ways to give us those views. That God, is, that God is controlling that. That God is calling those stars and, and that planet that we can see right now. That, that God moved that to that exact point in the sky so we could see that in that moment. And if God controls those heavenly hosts, what does that mean for our lives? Verses 28 through 31, we know that, that he alone is infinite in his existence and resources and that he promises to provide what we need. 
Have you not heard? Do you not know the Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? And he doesn't grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. And this great God, it says this, he gives strength to the weary, and he increases the power of the weak. For even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. Let's be clear. What he's saying is the strongest amongst you are going to fall dead at some point. Even the strongest among you will, will, will be fatigued. Even the, the strongest of you can't, can't hold up over time. But this God that has it all, he promises that he's going to give you strength. He's going to make sure that you have what you need. And I find the, the, the decrescendo right at the end kind of, kind of helpful. Because he, he tells us, hey, those who open the Lord, those that wait for God, they're going to renew their strength. And, and they're gonna, some of them, they're going to soar. We're going to start soaring in the clouds. And we're going to have moments where we're up above it all. And we can see the world and everything is great as we soar on the breeze. They'll soar on the wings like eagles. But sometimes we don't have the strength to soar, do we? So that's okay. That's okay. They're, they're going to run. They're going to run and not grow weary. Not quite soaring, but they're still moving really stinking fast. Life's still moving along at a good clip. We're still strong. Everything seems great. But then he says, they will walk and won't faint. Sometimes that's the reality for us, isn't it? That the best we can do is shuffle in one foot. In front of the other. I mean, they're not going to faint. Doesn't even say they won't fall. They're just going to keep moving forward. That God will sustain them and see them through. You see, God doesn't promise to undo the struggle. God promises to strengthen us through it. We will all come face to the face with the reality of our limitations and weaknesses. Our sins and our shortcomings. We'll all ride the struggle bus. We'll all find ourselves confronted by the chaos and the destruction of life in this world. But if we trust the Lord, if we patiently wait for him to move in his time and his way, God will see us through because he is him. Like literally, his name is I am. Sometimes we'll soar. Sometimes we'll run. Sometimes we'll struggle to even walk. But God promises to meet us where we are if we wait for him and call on him. And if we trust on him, trust in him, he will draw us deeper and deeper into relationship with him as he continues to deliver us both now and for eternity. May we trust God above all others. May he alone be the God to whom we pledge allegiance and and the God to whom we bow and the God whom we worship, understanding that he alone, our God alone, saves. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We pray that you would meet us where we are today. Lord, that you would help us to know in our struggle that you are strong and that you would strengthen us, that you would see us through whatever it is we're facing. God, we love you and thank you. Pray that you would continue to reveal us yourself to us now as we turn our attention to communion, recognizing that, that you don't just join us in our struggles, Lord, that you've experienced it. 
And you were entested in all ways just as we are, that we have a God who understands and saves us because he's been where we are. God, speak to us now in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.